I'm Emily Rowney. And I'm Alicia Holland. This is Bill Camp, the voice of Forensic Files 2 on HLN, and you're listening to Murder in the Rain. When a young trans woman went missing in Vancouver, Washington, her mother and friends knew something terrible had happened. Eventually, investigators narrowed in on a suspect, but he claimed to have simply left Nikki Kuhnhausen standing at the side of the road. That was until he was taken to court and his story changed, from one of dismissal to self-defense and trans panic. Today, I'll be telling the story of the inspiration for the newly signed Nikki's Law, Nikki Kuhnhausen. Part of the work we do on social media is to follow Pacific Northwest pages for missing people, unsolved murders, and cases that the loved ones of the victim are desperate to get media attention on. And so often we see case after case involving teens, especially in the LGBTQIA plus community, dismissed as runaways. Suddenly, the people that are outraged when a 17-year-old is a victim of a pedophile or murderer see them as adults that have made a decision to run away, even when the family swears that isn't the case. Sadly, that was the scenario for the family of 17-year-old Nikki Kuhnhausen of Vancouver, Washington. Lisa Woods, her mother, knew something was wrong when she didn't hear from her daughter on the morning of June 6, 2019. The mother-daughter duo was close and spoke daily. All Lisa knew was that Nikki had been at a friend's apartment near 4th Plain and Brant, and Nikki hadn't answered her phone when Lisa called. When the call Lisa made to Nikki went unanswered, the one she made every day when she was leaving for work, she was concerned. Her gut told her something was wrong. As the calls, texts, and Facebook messages went without a reply, it only served to make Lisa more nervous. Friends attempted their own contact, but with no success. Being that Nikki was usually busy posting makeup videos or selfies, her silence on social media was deafening. Lisa was frightened, but she knew her daughter could handle herself. She wasn't a violent person, but she didn't put up with bullshit. She had even been suspended from school on a few occasions when standing up for friends, sometimes strangers, who were being bullied. One such occasion took place during Nikki's sophomore year. Walking past the girls' bathroom, she found a fellow student who, due to their trans status, had been kicked out of the bathroom. Nikki found out who had done the bullying and forced them to apologize to the student. There was a reason Nikki was so compassionate to that student, the same reason Lisa was terrified she was missing. Nikki had been born Nick, a biological male, on July 6, 2001. Even as a child, Nikki knew who she was. Lisa knew, even when Nikki was young, that she wasn't interested in conforming to gender expectations. Lisa allowed Nikki to express herself via playing in clothes, watching shows considered to be for girls, getting pink on her cast when she broke her arm, and allowing her to wear the wigs her friend and hairdresser had around. Lisa, along with Nikki's father, gave her love, support, acceptance, and space, allowing Nikki to grow into the person she wanted to be. It wasn't until middle school she started to present as a female at school. Lisa never really saw a change in Nikki. She just saw her daughter growing into the woman she already was. That woman was confident, protective, loving, creative, and ambitious. She stood out in a crowd, always down for an adventure. She seemed totally unstoppable. She carried herself with an enviable confidence of who she was as a person and who she wanted to be. She had hoped her videos, showing off her makeup and fashion skills, would land her her dream job someday, working as a celebrity stylist, hopefully for her favorite artist and fellow Nikki, Nicki Minaj. 
While she waited to be discovered, Nikki was getting adoration from her classmates. Her fashion inspired the popular girls, her makeup earning compliments and requests for help. The reason Lisa felt a heightened concern for her daughter was her trans status. As we discussed in the Trans Remembrance Day episode, there is an epidemic of violence towards transgender and gender nonconforming people. Here are some stats, not just because Emily loves them. Oh, it's going to be real sad, though. Yeah. From a human rights campaign study for 2021 regarding fatal violence towards transgender and nonconforming individuals, 77% of victims since 2013 were women of color, with 85% of victims being transgender women and 84% of victims being persons of color. 2020 had record-breaking reports of hate crimes, transgender people the target in 232 of those reported crimes. 2019, the year of Nikki's disappearance, held the deadliest year on record for hate crime-related deaths with 51 victims. Black transgender women are critically impacted. Most common demographics were young women of color in the southern states. The age range of victims since 2013 were between 16 and 66, 79% being under the age of 35, 1 in 10 victims under 21. Across the country, 151 cities in 37 states and the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico were impacted by fatal violence against transgender people. More than two-thirds of the fatalities involved gun violence. Most cases involve interpersonal violence, meaning the victim was related to, friends with, or dating the person who killed them. When reporting deaths of transgender victims, approximately 80% of victims were misgendered by the police, media, and or justice system. This happening is not only disrespectful to the victim, it can affect the outcome of data collection, like for this study. It can even hinder investigations. It's interesting that you bring that up because I covered a, a TikTok case mm. on a, a transgender teenager who was murdered and basically the murderer got let off and mm. they had not yet really known who they were. They weren't quite sure. Oh, right. And e the media just... I mean, it was different in every article, but most often than not, they were going with their born name, mm. even though at school they went by this other name. Right. Even though they hadn't yet decided right, what their pronouns They're were. They're like, basically. well, let's just go with what we know for sure yeah, or what we can confirm or something. At that young teenager age, just now realizing like who you are, they weren't quite sure. And right. it was kind of sad to just see people not knowing how to handle it very it's obvious it's not well known the education right. on the subject isn't good right we're all well, learning and then that hinders getting help because that's one more person who you can use sadly as part of these statistics to say this is why we need help in these communities but then when they're dead named or not acknowledged as being gender non-conforming then the statistics aren't reflecting the actual numbers Mm -hmm. And then you don't get the support in the community. Exactly. So, yeah, that is sad to see. Besides violence, transgender folks face other forms of victimization. 62% of those surveyed reported experiencing discrimination in the previous year, 25% of which said the discrimination had led to psychological harm. 50% of transgender people have been discriminated against in public, while two-thirds said they changed their behavior or mannerisms and or clothing to minimize discrimination. We're just weeks into the new year, and there has already been at least one known murder of a transgender person. Just like the statistics warned, she was a young black female. 
Amari Lee, who went by Myra, lived outside Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. At just 19 years old, Myra was also known as Coach Chan for the hip-hop and majorette dance team, the Lady Diamonds. Her vibrant personality and smile shined brightly, illuminating her students, who saw her as a mentor or even sibling. Much like Nikki, Myra stood up to bullies and worked hard to make sure her dance students were confident in and out of the studio. All of that changed for what appears to be no reason when 2022 was just a few hours old. It was 6 a.m. on January 1st when calls were made to police reporting a body in the street. Police arrived at the 1300 block of Wood Street in the Wilkinsburg borough. There, they found the body of 19-year-old Amari. She had been shot. Due to the misgendering in other cases, it can only be believed that this is the first killing of a transgender person in 2022. Her family was able to raise over $15,000 on GoFundMe for funeral expenses. Amari had just recently transitioned, starting to live her life to the fullest before having it ripped away from her. Her murder remains unsolved. Investigators ask that if anyone has any information about her shooting death around 6 a.m. New Year's Day in Pittsburgh, you are asked to call the Allegheny County Police at 1-833-ALL-TIPS. <laughs> Knowing her daughter's gender identity was automatically putting Nikki in danger, Lisa had even more reason to be concerned. In just the last year, Nikki had started to dabble in drugs. What started as a teenage exploration, oversleeping and casual school skipping, soon became a full-blown addiction to meth. From 1987 to 2007, the Bureau of Justice Statistics showed between 3.9 and 7.4 percent of homicides with known causes were drug-related. Lisa worried Nikki's use could lead to dangerous situations. Her gender could lead to her death. Such danger wasn't a foreign concept to Nikki. She had already survived a brush with death. In 2018, Lisa received a call from the police. Nikki was part of a drug deal gone wrong and had been shot six times. The bullets went through her neck, thigh, her stomach twice, front of her leg, and back of her calf. And not a single one was life-threatening. Wow. Yeah. Unbelievable. Nikki realized how lucky she had been to survive, and Lisa hoped it would be her rock bottom, scaring her clean. After Nikki was officially reported missing on the 10th, her friends and family didn't just sit around and wait for her to return. Determined to fight against the assumptions of her daughter being just a junkie runaway, Lisa and friends plastered the city of Vancouver with missing person flyers. Besides a collage of adorable selfies, it described the 17-year-old. 5 foot 8, 120 pounds, Caucasian, black hair that sometimes browns, sometimes sporting extensions. As far as notable marks, she had many scars on her legs, thumb, stomach, thigh, and neck. On her wrist, a semicolon tattoo. I don't know the significance in Nikki's case, but I do know of Project Semicolon, commonly placed on the wrist. Semicolons represent a mental health crisis happening in the person's life, a time in which they experienced suicidal ideation. The semicolon represents pausing, stopping, and thinking, realizing that this moment shall pass, and like a semicolon, it isn't permanent. It isn't final. It's not a period, full stop. Makes me curious if maybe that's what it meant for Nikki. The first night of her disappearance, Lisa made a pillowcase out of Nikki's sweatshirt, sleeping with a Bible and photo of Nikki. 
Those first few days brought no answers, and I was unable to find why Lisa waited a couple of days before officially reporting her missing, but I can only guess that maybe she was just holding out hope that perhaps she was wrong or Nikki was just out of contact. I would assume that's the case. Yeah. Just ha- with the background of having some drug use mm-hmm. and being a young adult, likely going on their own every once in a while that you wouldn't want to, you know, yeah, make something out of nothing. Mm-hmm. And I could also hope. imagine if you are f- feeling fearful about it or you have that gut feeling that the report kind of makes it real. real. Yeah, that's so I could point. totally understand the hesitation there of like that's officially saying she is missing and we don't know where she is, which would be incredibly difficult. At two weeks missing, Nikki was listed on the Missing and Exploited Children's website. At the same time, Lisa worked tirelessly to get Nikki's name, face, and story out. She knew her daughter hadn't run away. Her friends knew she hadn't run away. Some of those friends were positive she hadn't because they had seen her that morning and knew she had left to meet up with someone. After a year of struggling through rehabs and treatments, Nikki was still dealing with her drug addiction. This would have her out of the house at times, staying with friends. And that was the case the night of June 5th. It was the morning of the 6th, around 6 a.m., when Nikki left her friend's place, telling them she was meeting up with someone for a ride, someone she had been chatting with online. It was clear Nikki had plans to return as she left her belongings behind. When talking to investigators, the friend said they thought that the guy she left to meet was a white Russian man in a white van, maybe close to 50 years old. All they knew was that Nikki had been out the night before, coming home around 5 a.m., At some point, she met who she later described as an older Russian who gave her a bottle of vodka and his jacket. Using her friend's phone and Snapchat as her phone was missing, Nikki messaged this mystery man before leaving around 6 to meet up with him. Detectives took that information as a starting point, checking the messages in the Snapchat account that had been used. There, just as the friends reported, they found messages from a user who turned out to be 25-year-old David Bogdanov the last of which came around 5.30 a.m., then right around 6. Finally armed with the name of a person of interest, police attempted to contact David. They soon learned he worked at his family's construction business. They also learned his phone number and address, both of which were used in attempts to contact him for questioning. But they never got a response. Unable to contact him, police assumed he too had gone missing. But in my research, I never saw a search, manhunt, or bolo released. In other reports, there was no mention of his disappearance concerning his family or even police. I know I'm no detective, but if I was unable to find the last person to see someone, I would come to one of three conclusions. That they are on the run because they did something, they kidnapped the missing person and they're both on the run, or something tragic happened to them while they were together and they're both in peril. I'm going to have to agree with you on that. So it would be pretty important to find that person. Yeah, I'd say so. In my opinion. (laughs) But the police didn't have those concerns. They continued to call, message, and stop by, but kind of threw up their arms like, eh, he's not answering. What can we do? In July, Nikki's 18th birthday came and went without word from her or developments in her case. In fact, the whole summer passed without any news. It wasn't until late September that police were able to get in contact with David, finally returning their calls. He explained he had been having phone problems and had just now gotten their messages. You know, nothing a catfish liar type person would say. Reasonable. Yeah. I mean, I know I would say that, but that's because I don't listen to my voicemail. 
what's voicemail? Exactly. If I were Alicia. It's full of 80 <laughs> messages saying, we're trying to reach you about your car's warranty. <laughs> With David finally in the picture, detectives invited him to the station to be interviewed. On October 2nd, he finally did just that. He had no problem telling his side of things. He had, in fact, been the man Nikki had met up with in those early morning hours of the 6th. David claimed to have been out drinking with friends the night before when around 3 a.m. he spotted Nikki on the sidewalk walking alone. Chatting, she explained she was upset due to a recent breakup. As they talked more, he shared his bottle of vodka with her and gave her his green jacket as she was cold. Since her phone was lost, he gave her his Snapchat handle and asked her to message him, which is exactly what she did when she got back to her friend's place. A little while later, she messaged him the address and he picked her up. Driving out to a secluded spot, they sat in his parked car, continuing their conversation from earlier. Eventually, Nikki came out to David as trans. The last time he saw her was when he asked her to get out of the car. Showing perhaps too much candor, David had no problem telling detectives how much disdain he held for the LGBTQIA community. I'm not necessarily sure if I'm a, a person of interest that I'd be willing to share that information with somebody who'd be missing if I were a criminal I, I guess yeah like, that to say I just so happen to have deep hatred for uh the community she belonged to well like if you're if you did it you wouldn't want to lead them on and if you didn't do it why would you want to put yourself under a microscope Mm-hmm. that's very odd uh-huh he just felt so strongly he had to he tell had the police to, yes mm-hmm hmm. He went on to say that he found them disgusting, even getting nauseous when he finds himself standing near a gay person. Proudly admitting to his bigotry, he drew the final line at aggression, assuring detectives he was never one to get violent, a sentiment his family supported, saying David was nothing but a kind, caring, and friendly person uh, yeah, who just happened like to it. hate people. Hmm. With nothing but a bad feeling to stand on, detectives were at a stalemate. As alarming as the combination of a drug-addicted trans teenager with an older, outspoken bigot was, there was no evidence of even a crime taking place, let alone enough evidence to charge David. Six months almost to the day of Nikki's disappearance, police finally had a breakthrough, but it wasn't the kind they had been so desperate for. It was December 7, 2019, when a man was walking on Larch Mountain, the one about an hour northeast of Vancouver in Clark County, Washington, not the same location of the murder of Whitney Heichel from our episode A Thinking Error. Walking along the side of the road, he came across a human skull. Police arrived and quickly found more remains. It was clear there had been animals involved in the scattering, but it was also clear someone had been dumped there. The process was arduous as the dump site was along a steep edge. Along with a partial skeleton, detectives found a jacket, underwear, miscellaneous jewelry, a bandana, and a phone charging cord. After two days of searching and a medical examination, the cause of death was declared homicide. One big factor leading to that decision, the phone charger. It barely had a four-inch diameter, it had been tied in multiple knots, and caught in the knots were chunks of hair from extensions. Without a starting point for identification, police started looking at local cases of missing persons that might match the description. Using the photos and videos Nikki had posted, investigators were able to match the bandana, rings, a watch, and jacket to those found at the scene. When dental records arrived a week later, they confirmed the body had been that of Nikki Kuhnhausen. She had been strangled to death with the cell phone cord. The same day Nikki was found, her mother had been at home making her a Christmas card, 
hoping it would manifest her return in time for the holidays. She then had to be told Nikki would not be coming home. On December 17th, David was invited in for questioning again. Now that they knew Nikki had been murdered, David wasn't just the last person to have seen Nikki, he was the last person to have seen her alive. Once again, he explained how disturbed he had been at her transgender status before booting her out of the car. He then drove to work across the river in Portland. It was after David gave the police his account of the day that they pulled out the evidence they now had against him. After running his phone records, they found he had not, in fact, gone to Portland the day of the 6th. They pointed out that his phone had actually pinged at Larch Mountain and along the drive for the hour there and back after meeting with Nikki in Vancouver. Asking to speak to a lawyer, officers informed him he was being arrested and charged with second-degree murder and malicious harassment, a hate crime. David flinched but didn't argue. He was soon after released on a $750,000 bail. This low bail outraged Lisa, who pointed out that other accused murderers were being held for millions of dollars. That was when prosecutors learned about where David had actually been when the police were unable to locate him for questioning. They found that on the day of the murder... David purchased a one-way ticket to the Ukraine. I knew it. And he stayed there for six weeks. This concern for flight risk led to the prosecution asking for a $6 million bail. Finding a compromise, the judge raised the bail to $2 million. Getting word of Nikki's murder, a Justice for Nikki task force was put together by local activists. The support for cases like this are desperately needed, as only 30% of trans murder cases ever have someone arrested, let alone sentenced. They organized vigils, offering support for Nikki's family, support for the trans community, all with hopes they may bring attention to her case. For Lisa, her focus had to shift. She went from being a mother searching for her vanished daughter to a mother seeking justice for her daughter's murder. That would now become the focus, the purpose of her life. Lisa knew justice wasn't just about getting a guilty verdict for David, but needed to include acknowledgement of Nikki being a victim of hate, that she had been killed because of her gender identity. One of the benefits of the pandemic and the quarantine we survived is that a lot of people discovered their own creative outlet. True. I myself even started a new Golden Girls podcast, Always Be My Sisters. It's been a fun and easy way for me to be creative and share mine and Josh's goofiness with the world. And for every person who did start a podcast, there are probably five others who thought about it and never made the jump. Our advice? Do it. Everyone has a point of view and there is literally a niche for every interest. The hardest part of getting started is finding the right host. Well, not in our case. No, not that kind of host. A podcast platform. That's why we were so excited when we found Red Circle. Whether you are brand new and looking to start your show or you're ready to move on from your stale old podcast host, Red Circle is the place to be. The features are rad. When we were new to the platform, we took advantage of the built-in promo swap feature, which allows you to connect with other podcasts to help promote each other's show. They also make it so easy to add an advertisement, upload episodes, or read analytics, even for a non-tech person like myself. Not to mention, they make getting advertisers so much easier. We struggled for over a year on our old podcast host platform and didn't win a single ad. Two weeks with Red Circle and we had advertisers. If you are interested in making the plunge to podcast host software that is easy to use, attractive, and constantly improving, check out our show notes for a link to sign up for Red Circle. 
You can also find a link on our promo codes tab at murderintherain.com. When the trial began, both sides had their story. For the prosecution, it was simple. Nikki was the victim of a hate crime, and they had all of the evidence to prove as much. For the defense, David had now changed his story and agreed. All of the evidence was correct, and David had been with Nikki and was now admitting to having killed her. But this wasn't about hate. This had been a case of self-defense. <sighs> of course. You believe it already. <laughs> Ma'am, we're going to have to excuse you from the I jury. Know, I'm sorry, I'd definitely be kicked <laughs> off of this jury. I know, I've been called to jury duty one time. It was in Vancouver. I sat in a room for three hours and they said, we don't need any of you. And we left. And now I know there's no way I'm ever going to get to be on a jury. You're just going to have to fake it to get on <laughs> that jury. Because they're going to ask, like, what do you do for a living? Nothing. <laughs> Not Nothing crime it'd related. Be, it'd be omission. If they specifically ask you, do you have a true oh, crime podcast, you're going to have to admit it. That's true. Do they Google search people on on juries these days probably well then you're screwed yeah (laughs) it's all i want even with the strong evidence they had the prosecution didn't sit back and hope for the best bringing in experts they discussed snapchat and the conversations nikki and david had they brought in the phone records which had been retrieved all the way back in july showing david's phone pinging in the area of larch mountain within hours of the messages with nikki When people learned about the pinging and that officers knew he had been there all the way back in July, detectives have said that even with that ping, the area was so vast they couldn't have known a starting point for conducting a search. Even when the skull was found, it was still quite difficult to get all of Nikki's remains. Those phone records showed not only where David had been, but what he had been looking for the night of the 5th, hours before he met up with Nikki. He had contacted multiple escort services, attempting to arrange an encounter. But then he met Nikki. While all of the messages have not been released, it is implied some of the messages between David and Nikki were sexual in nature or led investigators to believe they were meeting up for a sexual encounter. David's two brothers and an ex-girlfriend were called to testify. One brother testified that he and David were supposed to work on a tiling job on the 6th, but David just never showed up. That same brother also changed his story. During an interview early on in the investigation, he had stated he had gone out with David the night of the 5th and had met Nikki when she came back with him to the apartment that the brothers shared. David and Nikki hung out while the other brother went to bed. On the stand, he stated he had actually only met her that night when the brothers gave her a ride back to the friend's place. His other brother never met Nikki and said David had never mentioned her. The ex-girlfriend said David had a habit of using derogatory slurs when referencing members of the LGBTQIA community. She also knew he carried a gun with him often. The use of slurs was confirmed by a police officer who happened to be a certified translator who translated the conversation David had with his family while he was in custody. Even then, he couldn't restrain his disdain. Oh my gosh, that they think they're getting away with it because uh-huh. they speak in another language. You know, I find it interesting that they changed their tactic to admit that he did it, but under self-defense when it's so clear you have a problem with trans people. Yeah. Like, I, you're basically just trying to get the lightest sentence I, you Yeah, can I think that point. was a Hail Mary of just, you can't fight that evidence. Like, let's try to get him under life, mm-hmm. maybe. I don't know. 
Both the brothers and ex also supported the prosecution when it came to David's whereabouts during the months detectives were casually looking for him. David had not discussed any plans to travel, had not informed them that he would be traveling, and his being out of contact for the month and a half was very unusual behavior. While he was in the Ukraine, he even called home to have a friend get rid of his car. Um, red flag. No, that's very normal. As for the defense, they called one witness, David Bogdanov. It was his word against the prosecution. Testifying, he was now in agreement with everything detectives had found. He wasn't arguing about having been with Nikki or even murdering her. He had been to Larch Mountain, and yes, he dumped her body there. But it was all for good reason. It had been his life over hers. Questioning him on his background, the defense asked David about his feelings towards the LGBTQIA community. David did not hold back. Due to his religious and cultural background, he was raised being taught that gay is wrong. Once again, he was shockingly candid about being disgusted by the mere presence and existence of gay people. What an idiot. Then he got to the morning in question. What really happened between himself and Nikki? According to David, he had gone to the house she was staying at after she Snapchatted her address to him and they went out on a drive. Again, reports differ as to if he and his brother gave her a ride to the house, left, and he went back later by himself, or if his first appearance there was around 6 a.m. Going to a secluded area, they parked. David claimed Nikki began smoking something from a pipe before she climbed into the back seat. She then invited him to join her. Since this man had already been shopping for sex, he had no problem crawling into the back seat. Before he did so, he placed his gun between the driver's seat and the console. Making out, they soon started touching each other. Recounting his harrowing tale, David then had the nerve to start crying while on the stand. Oh, this guy. Yeah, I don't often have to take a break in a case out of, like, I mean, I always want to scream, <laughs> but, like, watching his the video of his testimony and him, like, crying at at the situation is one of the more appalling things I've seen in quite some time. And it's not that, I'm, I mean, I'm making an assumption. He's not crying for Nikki's death. This is him he's, crying for himself. He's a victim. His victimhood. Oh. As Nikki began touching his penis, things were quickly escalating towards a sexual interaction. He didn't get specific as to how Nikki informed him of her gender status, if she actually said something or if he just figured it out, and that was when he lost it. Freaking out, he started yelling at her, You didn't tell me you were a dude. He felt deceived and called her a disgusting piece of crap before demanding she get out of the car. That expulsion, according to David, was when everything changed. <laughs> David claimed Nikki started to fight back, kicking and hitting before leaning forward in an attempt to get his gun. Nikki's perceived deceit by David left him feeling scared for his life. His reasoning being basically, if she was willing to lie about her gender, she's probably willing to do something violent. When questioned about the gun specifically, David danced around giving a firm yes or no in regards to Nikki actually getting close to or touching the gun. Here's a snippet of the transcript regarding that moment. Lawyer, to your knowledge, while this was going on, Nikki had never even touched your gun, is that correct? David, while what was going on? Lawyer, while you were having a cord around her neck. David, she was trying to reach for it. Lawyer, 
She never actually touched that gun, to your knowledge. David, she did. Lawyer, well, you said you saw afterwards the gun was moved. You didn't know that at the time. David, she did. I saw her reaching for the gun, and the gun was not wedged between the seat anymore. It was on the seat. Lawyer, earlier, didn't you say that was something you noticed after she was dead? David, it was when she passed out, and I pushed her off, and I go for the gun myself, and I saw it was lying on the seat. Lawyer, so up to that point, you had no idea she'd even touched the gun? David, I know she was going for the gun. Lawyer, but up to that point, you had no idea she'd even touched it, right? David, I wasn't sure. The DA then questioned David about his family's response should they learn he had been sexually involved with someone who had been born male. Lawyer, your family would not talk to you? David, they would still talk to me. They're my family, but... Lawyer, it wouldn't be the same, would it? David, probably not. Lawyer, and the thought of people finding out about this was really scary to you? David, um, humiliating. Lawyer, you were humiliated in that moment, correct? David, yes. David went on. In an attempt to keep Nikki away from the firearm, he had grabbed the jacket she was wearing, but he couldn't keep a hold. Out of desperation, he grabbed the phone charging cord. Getting out of the car, he used the cord, but only to wrap around her upper arms and chest. But in the struggle and his desperation to save his own life, his own larger, 10-year-older, stronger life, the cord slipped up her chest onto her neck. She continued fighting, not for her own life in his eyes. No, she was still fighting to kill him. Fighting to get the cord off her neck, she continued to hit, tried to bite him, and was scratching at his face. Then suddenly, she died. Strangulation, even with a ligature, is not a fast process. While someone might pass out after only a few seconds, death doesn't occur quickly. David's argument was basically he accidentally killed her after holding the cord on her neck for somewhere between three and five minutes. With a dead teen literally in his hands, he panicked. He knew he would need to call the cops, but he had been drinking and they had been smoking. I never read if it was weed or meth or any other drug, but the drugs, which he blamed on Nikki, were in his car. One more strike when it came to calling the police. That was when he decided the best option would be to move on with his life and dump her body. So he drove to Larch Mountain, pulled her out of the car, and pushed her over the edge. He then made his plan to leave the country. Fleeing to the Ukraine wasn't because he was guilty and running away. Once again, his motives were all about him. He had realized his drinking was getting him in bad situations. Not that it had turned him into a murderer, but that he was meeting up with strangers that turned out to be transgender, leading him to experience total humiliation. So, obviously, he needed to leave the country. Again, he plainly declared this on the stand, explaining that the embarrassment of the ordeal had him wanting to literally leave it all behind him. He just wished none of it had ever happened. Yeah, I was, I was taught that... Um, it is a sin, and it's not okay. And what was Nikki doing at that point? She was smoking something out of a pipe. So that transitioned into us making out. Is there touching or anything else? Yes. Okay. Who was touching who? It was a little bit of both at first. Um, Where was she touching you? Her. She started touching me um, in my private area. I was in shock. I, I just been deceived. 
I freak out and I uh, push her, push her back, and you start freaking out, saying, "You didn't tell me you're a dude," and started yelling at her to uh, says she, she's a disgusting, disgusting piece of piece of crap. She kind of picked up her foot and tried to just kick me with her foot from passenger side, and she just jumps up and goes towards the center console towards my gun. I'm thinking, you know, I just was deceived by this person and this person's high on meth. And all I can think is, oh my God, I'm gonna get shot right now. The whole time she's trying to fight me and just reaching back and scratching at my face, trying to gouge my eyes. So at some point does she stop struggling? Yes. I was scared, emotional wreck. I was thinking I need to, I need to quit my drinking and that I likely would have not have been in this situation if I hadn't been drinking and just wanted to get away. His confession of not having phone issues and accidentally killing Nikki was never part of any of his conversations with investigators. The prosecution wasn't buying any of it. The biggest flaw in David's story was that the cord had clearly been used as a ligature. It wasn't like it was found untied with the bodies and investigators just assumed it was the murder weapon. The cord had been triple knotted and had a circumference of just under four inches. The average neck circumference for an adult woman is 13.5 inches. Yikes, that is some rage. This visual has stayed with me since I started working on this case. Nikki, which due to her being a skinny teenager, had a neck that was probably smaller than the average adult woman, and that cord was just four inches. The knots and tightness of the ligature explained how her extensions became tangled. Prosecution also showed that the cord had been found with a bone fragment from Nikki's neck and a piece of her necklace. When it came time for closing arguments, the defense reminded the jury that this was a case of life or death. David was in a panic and he had to make a choice. In the end, he simply chose his own life over Nikki's. Prosecution agreed. Nikki's death had been based on panic. What is sometimes referred to as the gay panic defense, which is exactly what David was admitting to when talking about his hatred for the LGBTQIA persons and his reaction to learning Nikki's status. They asked the jury to look at all of the evidence and to see it through the lens of embarrassment, shame, and anger. If you feel someone is attacking you or reaching for a weapon, you wouldn't really stick around. David could have easily physically overpowered Nikki to the point that if it had truly been a case of self-defense, he could have gotten back in his car and left. Instead, he stayed and had enough anger towards her to hold that four-inch cord around her neck for minutes on end. Again, if it had been self-defense, there would have been no need to dump her body, flee the country, or lie to police. Did it ever come up if he'd had rage issues outside of his feelings of homosexuality? Not that I ever saw. All the family members were like, no, he's so kind, he's so loving, he, I don't think he did this, this isn't him. But then you see him, his feelings and bigotry are so close to the surface, he's almost happy to talk about it. It comes out so easily mm-hmm. that I'm sure other people that they maybe didn't interview had seen that side of him. We've discussed the gay or trans panic defense in the past, but for a quick refresh, it's the defense used by people who claim to become so distraught when learning of someone's gender identity or sexual identity, they become incapacitated, leading to the crime being committed. 
The first gay panic defense was used in the 1950s. It basically allows defendants to use the insanity brought on by the gay panic as part of their defense. It's usually paired, as in David's case, with an argument of self-defense or diminished capacity. While it usually doesn't aid in getting acquittals, it does often lead to shorter sentences or lesser charges. One of the more famous utilizations would be from the 1990s Jenny Jones saga. Back when Jenny Jones had a talk show, she had a guest on to reveal a secret crush. Problem was, it was a gay man admitting to a straight man he had a crush on him. The perceived humiliation by the straight man led to him shooting the gay man in his apartment a few days after taping. His panic defense worked in that he was found guilty of second-degree murder, not the first-degree murder he was charged with. There have been several federal bills attempted by Congress to prohibit the gay trans panic defense, but so far, two of them have died before moving on. There is S-1137, which was introduced last year, also banning the defense, and from my understanding, that one is still in limbo. After two weeks of trial, two years after Nikki's death, the jury took two days to decide David's fate. On the first day of deliberations, it only took a few hours for the jury to come to a decision about one of the charges. However, the second was a struggle, the judge even receiving a note from the jury about their concerns, informing the judge that one of the jury members was unwilling to hear evidence or to have a conversation, the foreman expressed concerns. When the judge received a second note requesting a new juror because the other 11 did not feel the one holdout was being open-minded, Whoa. yeah, which you don't really hear I would of worry, often. I would worry about that because, you know, as much as I hate to say it, people are not open-minded about mm-hmm. trans people. Right. Like it. I mean, many are, but there are so many that are not. And Mm -hmm. it is a jury of your peers, so it is bound to happen. Especially if there's a peer of David and you have, like, a very black and white, no, it is wrong, that that is going to be an issue. The jurors felt that the other jurors' personal bias was hindering the vote, but she would not explain her views or even have a deliberation with her fellow jurors. Not wanting a deadlocked jury, the judge brought them back into the jury room reminding them of their instructions regarding deliberations. The jury then went back to work until 5 p.m. After two days of what I can only imagine was heated deliberation, they finally agreed on both charges. One juror reported later that they had been feeling concerned as they didn't even know what would come from that second day of talks. One juror reporting later that they had been feeling nervous as they didn't know what the outcome would be for that second day of conversation. David Bogdanov was found guilty for the murder and harassment of Nikki Kuhnhausen. As hardly controlled cheers rang out, the Justice for Nikki team met outside the courtroom, holding a gathering for all of Nikki's family, friends, supporters, and community members. As for David's family, his niece refuses to believe he was capable of committing murder. His sister felt confident he would be okay because he was willing to face the trial. Two weeks after the verdict, the judge gave a 15-minute statement regarding the ugliness of the murder. Noting the darkness and heinousness of the crime, the judge listened to Lisa's request for harsh sentencing, and he did just that. The judge noted that, as a 25-year-old buying alcohol for a 17-year-old, there was an element of predatory behavior. David's skipping the country hindered the investigation, and his unwillingness to share the location of Nikki's remains as to give the family closure was all alarming, concerning, and evidence of his callous nature. The judge sentenced David to 19 and a half years, with another year, concurrently, for the harassment charge. 
As relieved as Lisa was to see her daughter's killer be put away, she didn't want her daughter's death to just be another name in a statistics report. She wanted it to spawn some real meaningful change. With hopes of protecting other LGBTQIA folks, Governor Inslee of Washington signed Nikki's Law on March 5, 2020. Along with 16 other states, the gay trans panic defense cannot be used in the state of Washington. Nikki was known for her kindness, self-expression, and loyalty. While she is no longer around to protect her fellow LGBTQIA community members, it is nice to know her memory and legacy will go on, carrying her protective spirit. I never saw anything or heard anything as to why they didn't also throw in a statutory rape charge. Yep, that's what I was going to say. Well, they pro- I don't know if they could prove it. The a rape happened. Well, but they were being, you know, they were engaging in sexual activity. Do you but have to But how far have... did it go? I don't know. There's probably a lesser charge than statutory rape. Well, because they didn't Lewd have actual behavior with a minor like, sexual something. intercourse of any exactly okay. like they're they're gonna be, but something a twenty five year old and a seventeen year old isn't there like something? Those are often dropped for a larger charge, but yeah. it's like why stop there when yeah. somebody, especially um, when he's getting nineteen years, you know he's still gonna have quite the life when yeah, he gets out, absolutely, and he'll probably get out early and, and he'll probably a, get paroled, and that's not a minor charge to me. Like yeah, that is a big deal. That to me is. You need that on your record. Yeah. That to me is one of the more concerning ones when it's the. Because you're right. She looks young. Oh, yeah. But like crime of passion and crime of anger and hate and all of those things. And it's like you're just a time bomb. What if this whole thing, Nikki wasn't wanting to be sexually engaged and this was a attempt of rape Mm -hmm. and then he discovered she was trans. Right. Yeah. You're 17 years old and you meet some random stranger. You know, unlike Nikki, I think so many people can look back um, at their late teens, early 20s and go, I cannot believe I got out of that alive. You know, like I <laughs> I made some bad choices of who I went mm-hmm. and saw or where I went or who I talked to and like that it's always kind of that close. It's statutory rape no matter what. Right. Because she was underage. But right. like, was he the aggressor right off mm-hmm. the bat or was this a mutual attraction right. situation? Yeah. And that's what I mean is I think he, I think it genuinely was how he explained it. I think they got to chatting on the street. They got to chatting on Snapchat. They met up to kill some time. Yeah. And, you know, and I think maybe, yeah, it's like, oh, cool. We can hang out and smoke some stuff. Okay, fun. And then like, oh, let's just crawl in the back seat. That's fun too. Like trying to have a teenager brain about it. It's like, yeah, that's that sounds about right for a teenager. Well, and if drugs were involved, right. not in your right state right. of mind. And it, and it sounded like from um there's actually a 48 hours on this and it sounded like she was in recovery, it, like not full blown out on the street, not functioning addict. Yeah. So it's hard to not imagine the combination of like a 17 year old brain and this guy maybe said, hey, you want to meet up later and I have drugs. You're talking to a drug addict brain in a 17 year old brain. Yeah, I'll text you. In a 17 year old brain dealing with the very real issues of gender identity mm-hmm. and living in a world that doesn't accept you for who you are. Yeah. Even though some people really do. Yeah. You're going to go by different people every day of your life yeah. who do not agree with you. Oh, it you. scares me. I, I've had a family member um, just in the last year has come out as trans and started 
the hormone therapy and all of that. And even though she's tall and even though she's strong, it my my feelings towards her have shifted not because she's trans but the worry the best part is that this law came into place um oregon does not have that law yet and only 16 states have it which is wild and the fact that it keeps getting voted down in congress and so it's like really (laughs) like no we want permission to kill whoever we want yeah it's like how do you argue for not having it like i gotta witness that the same way they argue everything that makes no sense. <laughs> it's just if you're going to sit, like, make a group of people a lot safer, why wouldn't you want to do I it? Would, I wish that uh, for those votes, groups of people affected by the law can sit, like, in the and front row. And ask them row. questions, yeah. too. And be like, oh, we're all members of the trans community and we just want to talk to you I about. I think you're on to something. <laughs> so you have a vote and then 15 minutes after every vote, a panel of people get to ask you your reasoning. Yeah. And you have to defend your choice. Yeah. I think we should do it. Yeah. It should be for everything. I'm going to go ahead and bring that to Congress myself. <laughs> <laughs> Say it to my face why you think that Why is my life exist? not yeah. matter? Why should my life be less than another person? For everything. For like prison sentences rape victim support the the we you know we talked about a million times the difference in prison terms for someone black versus white right. who did the exact same crime mm-hmm. yeah there we have a long way to go and that's why we're running for co-president <laughs> no thank you i do not want that job. i'm looking for less responsibility yeah. more money <laughs> oh perfect not they don't make that much <laughs> i mean six figures and you get book deals to be constantly. a president and be ridiculed oh, president. publicly. Oh, yeah. Gross. Oh, president would be terrible. I can't imagine the self-loathing I would have after hearing about how awful I am. You know, every what I day. think about often is like how I get stressed about like little stuff, and then I can't sleep because I'm like, oh god, this thing happened, or oh, this thing's coming all up. Medicated, I'm and sure. it's like you're in your seventies and you're just sleeping through the night. <laughs> You're not having heart attacks about this? I mean, we don't know their health. We don't know. (laughs) Sweet dreams. I don't know how anyone would want that job. She had even been... Been? Me too. I've been there. (laughs) Don't make fun of me. She had Oh shit. I keep doing that. I forget we're like actually recording. We're live. And they just want to keep bantering. (laughs) Let's just talk and hang out. 60 60 poo. I thought you were going with proof. (laughs) Using her friend's phone and Snapchat app. Ooh, Snapchat tap. (laughs) Using her friend's phone and Snapchat. Oh boy. (laughs) Snapchat app. Snapchat. You could just say Snapchat. Kids today know exactly what it is. It's true. As for the defense, they called one witness. Witness? What? (laughs) What the fuck? (laughs) Murder in the Rain is produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney and Alicia Holland. Artwork by Jamie Costa. Music by Kai Pfeiffer at kyfifer.com. 
Check out our website, murderintherain.com, for additional information on all cases, a fun interactive map, and be sure to subscribe so you can receive our newsletter. Check out the Mad Props page for coupon codes from some of our sponsors. We love your reviews and seeing them on all streaming platforms, especially iTunes. And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And suck my balls. (laughs) Please put that in. (laughs) 